Live around the globe, it's time for Rudy Max's World on the SSI Radio Network. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, bear, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. Get on the phone now and call 800-387-8025. That's 1-800-387-8025. Or email the show at info at rudymaxa.com. And now, the savvy traveler himself, Rudy Maxa. Well, I don't know if I've been everywhere, but I've been a lot of places, and I'd like to take you along with me. Welcome aboard. I am Rudy Maxa, a.k.a. The Savvy Traveler. I'm delighted to have you join me today for a look at all things travel. You don't need me to remind you that this is the 10th anniversary of those terrible events we now call 9-11. In a few moments, we're going to talk with Jennifer Oberstein. She's a friend of mine and a woman who is working, who was working as a public relations executive with the Ritz-Carlton in New York's Battery Park, which was a neighbor to the World Trade Center. I'm going to ask her about her thoughts this weekend, and then she'll join me toward the end of the hour to describe what she saw. By chance, she became one of the first eyewitnesses on national television as she described to NBC's Katie Couric and Matt Lauer that morning what was going on before most reporters could even get to the scene. Then we're going to talk with Andrew Evans. He's spending a month traveling through Japan for National Geographic Traveler magazine, experiencing life there six months after the devastating earthquake and tsunami. And a former U.S. astronaut, Air Force Colonel Charles Precourt, joins me. I want to ask him about the implications for space travel in the wake of that uh, failed uh, Soyuz cargo rocket mission last month that was supposed to transport supplies of the International Space Center. Uh, what I want to know is, also, is are we, are we ever going to have space travel that actually gets someone around the globe quickly rather than just shooting tourists up for a bird's-eye view of the planet? I'll ask him about that. As usual, I have a couple deals of the week, but let's begin with a look at this week's news and travel. Well, if you're old enough to remember traveling uh, before 9-11, you know how drastically the events of that day change the way we fly, from taking off your shoes to passing through security and measuring the amount of the mouthwash you're carrying and any other liquids for that matter. There are a whole bunch of rules that have changed when it comes to airports. You used to be able to just walk in and wait for somebody at the gate and greet them and walk out. We're paying for that security, by the way. There's a $2.50 September 11th security fee tacked on each ticket, and that may rise to $5 in the near future. Congress is talking about that. Uh, we spend more money at airports, it turns out, because we spend more time in them. That's because we can no longer dash to a gate 10 minutes after hopping out of our car or taxi. We've got to get there sometimes a couple hours early, at least an hour early for domestic flights. The airline industry wasn't exactly rolling in the dough back in 2001, but when 9-11 hit, planes flew almost empty for months. Uh, I'm sure many in the audience don't were, you know, are too young to remember that. It was, after all, 10 years ago. But you would get on a plane on September 17th, and it would be you and four other souls. Now, all those extra fees we pay for meals and baggage and preferred boarding and seating, they are in part due to airlines trying to get back into the black because of 9-11. Well, are we safer? I've had security experts, including former government security experts on this show, saying the TSA is more theater than preventive force. But I will say I'm happy planes have securely locked doors to the cockpit now. I think the hiring of security personnel at airports is done more carefully now. And a no-fly list, if it's scrupulously maintained, is all to the good. Having said that, too many TSA checkpoints fail tests when investigators slip weapons or explosives through them, and simple security flaws in airports remain unaddressed, and the lack of common sense at times by some TSA employees is just stunning. On a separate topic, in November, British Airways promises an overhaul of its frequent flyer program. Instead of the Executive Club, the program will be called Avios. But the best news for members is that the amount of points necessary to collect many award tickets is dropping. For example, today you'd have to cash in 50,000 British Airways miles for a round-trip coach ticket between London and New York. 
Under Avios, you'll only need to give up 40,000 points. So that's a 10,000 points advantage consumer. A biz class ticket will cost 80,000 points instead of 100,000. Uh, your BA miles will convert to an equal number of Avios points, and there will be some other, some other enhancements as well, BA promises. will stay on top of it. Now, if you've ever checked into the Ritz-Carlton Hotel at the tip of Manhattan on Battery Park, you know how close it was to the World Trade Center towers. On 9-11, Jennifer Oberstein was at work there as the hotel's public relations chief. She's since moved on to a different job with leading hotels of the world, but in those days, she was right there. It turned out she was also witness to the tragedy that unfolded there. When I turned on the NBC television to follow the news that morning, I heard my friend Jennifer, who I knew professionally and personally, describing the scene on the air to, uh, to the Today Show's Katie Couric and Matt Lauer. Uh, Jennifer, I know this is a difficult weekend for you. Is it? Is it made more difficult by all the media attention uh, to the 10th anniversary of the attacks, or has this date been a tough one for you, you know, every one of the last 10 years? Hi, Rudy. Um, well, every year is important and, and difficult. I actually um, find some comfort in all the attention, actually, because some, some anniversaries, there's less attention than others, and I feel that, you know, we should be paying attention to it each year. I believe we have to hold on but also move on, but it's such an important part of history and we can never let it happen again and we should remember those we lost. But I believe it or not, I take I find comfort in all of the coverage. That's very interesting because you know some some folks don't um who went through that experience. Did you lose anyone? Did you know anyone in the disaster who was killed? No, um I always say I'm very thankful that I did not know anyone personally, um, and I'm, I'm grateful. Do you move away from the television when uh, the, the networks replay scenes of the of the towers collapsing? You know, I... I don't really, I don't really move away. I haven't watched it as much over the years. This year, I've actually decided to um, watch it more. I actually have never had never listened to myself um, on the Today Show that morning. My family had tapes, and I know that they've replayed it on the air. But I have actually uh, just this, just just recently listened to a few bits and pieces of it for the first time, uh, and I have I have watched the towers come down, and um, you know it's it's. It's very, very hard, obviously. Uh, I actually did not see the towers fall that day. Uh, I only I, I saw the, the planes hit, but I was far away um, and couldn't see the towers fall. That may be a blessing. I, uh, when, when you listen to yourself, I mean, you said you heard snippets of that tape of you talking to the day show. You were on the air for quite a while, weren't you? Yes, I believe so. Again, I've only heard a few seconds of it, but I called up after the after the, the first plane hit, which I didn't know it was a plane because I was south of the towers. Uh, I just saw an explosion. I actually tried to call my father because he, at the time, was working in the World Financial Center next door, and I wanted to just tell him something was very wrong. I didn't know what it was. Um, and then after I tried calling him, I did call my former boss over at, in the Today Show control room. Um, when I when I called over there, they basically said, you know, Jennifer, we're in the middle of a live broadcast. And I, I said, you know, I have to tell you something. I'm downtown and I've seen something. I don't know what it is, but you should know that something's happened. And I guess, you know, basically they, they were getting lots of unconfirmed reports and no one who they knew or could trust. And all of a sudden they put me on hold and they came back on the line and said, you're really down there? You really saw that? We'd like, you, we'd like to put you on the air. 
Amazing. What when you hear your voice, even those snippets you've heard, does mm-hmm. it sound like another person? You know, it's it's hard. There, I mean, the main reason I didn't want to relive those moments by watching it, and then of course we all know how hard it is to listen to us on tape or hear us being interviewed. You know, yes. um, we're, we're so critical of our own voices and what have you. I will tell you that when I listened to it, I thought that I. The parts I heard, I thought I sounded like a normal person experiencing normal things and how a regular person would react. So I, was, I wasn't too self-critical. We're going to come back with Jennifer later in the show. Jennifer, we'll, give you, we'll talk to you a little to later. To participate okay. in the Thank program you. and speak with Rudy Maxa, call 800-387-8025 or email the show at info at rudymaxa.com. Attention savvy travelers, Rudy Maxa here. If you're like me, you can't afford to take chances when you travel. You need medical evacuation service that's dependable and won't cost you a fortune in hidden fees. You need MedJet Assist. As a member, if you're hospitalized over 150 miles from home, MedJet will arrange medical transfer to the hospital of your choice free of charge. Believe me, you won't find protection like this from any other company, which is why I'm a member. It's time to travel smarter. Visit TakeTripsNotChances.com and sign up today. MedJet Assist. Take trips, not chances. Heritage for the blind reminds you to be kind. There's something you can do for those who depend on you. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS. 1-800-DONATE-CARS today. Heritage for the Blind is an IRS-recognized charity, and your donation is tax-deductible. Whether your car runs or not, we'll tow it away for free. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day hotel voucher to one of many exciting locations. So be a star. Donate your car. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS or call 1-800-555-6689. And remember, you can prevent blindness by getting your eyes checked annually. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS. 1-800-DONATE-CARS today. Today. Motorcyclists often seem rather intimidating. Rough and tumble. Real bad mamma jammers. Little do folks know they can actually be quite sensible. Especially if they ensure their motorcycle with Geico along with their car. Geico's multi-policy discount could save them quite a bit of money. Did I just say bad mamma jammers? Do you ever say so and think, I wish I'd never said that? This is one of them times. Call Geico or visit geico.com today to see how much our multi-policy discount could save you. To join Rudy Maxa, call 800-387-8025. You can email the show at info at rudymaxa.com. Now back to Rudy Maxa's World. After the hour, if you're joining me for the first time, if it's the first time you've heard this show, uh, welcome to Rudy Maxa's World. We talk about travel from every, just about every aspect, whether it's a, a hotel executive or a, uh, a butler or uh, uh, someone who hires gentlemen hosts for cruise ships. Uh, We cover it all. We take your questions at 1-800-387-8025. I invite you to join me on Facebook. If you go in there and type Rudy Maxa TV show, I know you're listening to a radio show, but I also do a TV show, and Facebook wouldn't give me enough room to type it all in. It's Rudy Maxa TV show. Click like, will you? We're trying to get up to 2,000 friends. We uh, hit our 1,000 goal uh, a couple weeks ago. We're up to, I don't know, about 1,100, and love to hit 200 in the next couple weeks. Uh, 
I'm going to end the year with 2,000. Um, and uh, listen, if you call that 800-387-8025 number, you may very well get us on the air live if you're calling between 10 and noon Eastern, because that's when we broadcast this show live. But a lot of stations time shift our stoto later on Saturday and into Sunday. If so, you're going to hear my pleasant voice inviting you to leave a message. Please do. If you've got a question, I answer them on the air, or I may put you on the air and answer them. Um, uh, so feel free to call anytime. And as I say, even if you get that message, we listen to all our messages. So if you have an idea for a topic, if you've got uh, a travel question I might be able to answer, feel free to call 800-387-8025. Andrew Evans is with National Geographic Traveler, and he's on a 23-day 23, 23 tour through Japan trying to assess the country since the uh, disastrous earthquake and tsunami of earlier this year. We're reaching him uh, today. Are, we, are you in Tokyo, Andrew? I'm not actually. I'm in Kyushu in the south of the country. Right. Uh, Andrew's in Kyushu. we got a slight uh, voice delay because of the, the distance. Thank you for staying up uh, to, uh, to talk to us. Um, what is the goal of this trip? I know you're posting furiously on YouTube and, and, and on various sites that you're going to tell us about and writing blogs. Is, is, are you really trying to see how the country has recovered or not recovered from the crisis? You know, first and foremost, Rudy, I'm here just to explore Japan. This is my first time here. It's a country I've always wanted to visit. But definitely visiting six months after the great disaster and seeing how things have recovered is, is part of the goal of my journey. And, and how many days have you been there now? I've been here 10 days now. And what are your impressions in that regard? Uh, you know, it, it is such a marvelous country. Um, it, it's, it's almost reverential, I think. Uh, People are still traumatized by what happened back in March. Um, you, you, yeah, everyone brings it up, no matter where you are in the country. And yet, physically, things have recovered very quickly. And, and do, you, do you find people bring the subject up, or do you have to bring it up to discuss it with them? You know, they, they bring it up themselves. And I, I've learned in Japanese culture, it's, it's impolite to bring up unpleasant topics of mm -hmm. conversation. Uh, so I let them do it. But almost everyone I meet who speaks any sort of English, uh, it's, it's one of the things they bring up almost immediately. So it is on their minds. And how do they bring it up? Do they say uh, thank you for international assistance? Do they say we are trying to rebuild? What do they, how, do they, how do they bring that topic up? I think it's something that's much more metaphysical. I think it's emotional for them. Uh, they bring it up as, as, as a reason for sadness uh, and that this is something that has affected them. Uh, that it's affected a lot of people, and they all have stories of how it's affected them in, in one way or another. Um, I went to Sendai uh, very early on in my trip, and I attended a baseball game there in the stadium that had been damaged by the earthquake. And so when I talk about that, they, they are all very curious to know uh, what the stadium is like now, what the airport is like that got hit by the tsunami. I flew out of that airport, and it's been completely repaired. Uh, it's phenomenal how quickly it's just it's up and running again. Um, but, again, emotionally, it's, it's still weighing on the people. Have you been close to the epicenter? Yes. Um, you know, the epicenter was just off the coast of Sendai. I was as close as you can get without going to, to sea. And I also passed through Fukushima, which is where they had the, um, the disaster with the nuclear power plant. Um, things are recovering slowly there as well. But when you look around, do you see a landscape of devastation? Not at all. Um, it's, it's the way Japan is. It's just everything is up and running and normal. I mean, I looked uh, with very keen eyes to see any kind of destruction, and I, I didn't. Uh, 
along the shore of Sendai by the airport, you could see that the beaches, that the trees had really been affected. Mm-hmm. But that was all that I saw. I mean, the airport's brand new, sparkling new, and, and it's running as if nothing ever happened. My guest is National Geographic Traveler Magazine's Andrew Evans. He's uh, called their digital nomad because unlike most of us who get sent out and write stories that appear months later, Andrew brings it to you uh, fresh and hot uh, right off the griddle. Uh, If you would like to see some of the videos he's posting, he just posted one this weekend in which he uh, went the length of Japan on the high-speed train, their bullet train there. Um, That's how many miles and how many hours, Andrew? Uh, it was over 1,200 miles, and it was exactly 12 hours. I did it in a single day. And I noticed your video. It was light almost all the time. So you must have started in the morning, and, and was the sun still setting when you reached the north? Yeah, it was. I went the, from north to south, and I Sorry, went about 8.30 in the morning, uh-huh. and I arrived at 8.30 at night. Yeah. Uh- Amazing. Uh, you can find that video at uh, nationalgeographic.com's uh, Digital Nomad blog and also on YouTube. Uh, Andrew has a uh, channel there called, it's all one word with no apostrophe, Where's Andrew TV? Dot, uh, Where's Andrew TV? So if you go to YouTube and type in search for Where's Andrew TV, you'll see not only a couple of his first uh, Japan videos, but also videos he's made from elsewhere in the world. Um, is your trip planned, Andrew, or are you playing it by ear? Uh, a little bit of both. I've planned certain things that I want to see, but I always try to keep lots of breathing room to, to kind of step off the beaten path and wander. So uh, today I've been wandering down here in Kyushu. And wh- what, what did you find? What do you, what do you look for when you wander? Are you stopping in restaurants? Are you talking to, to people? You know, I don't know what I'm going to find. I just, I just set off, and whatever I, you know, catches my eye or I find interesting or if I hear something, I, I follow that noise. Um, it, it's the way I like to travel. And so here in Kyushu, I've just found some really beautiful landscapes. I'm near the ocean, uh, so bright blue sea. This is almost the tropical part of Japan, so it's, it's very warm. It's very lush, uh, lots of palm trees. You wrote about the, uh, uh, the, uh, am I pronoun- the Saikan Tunnel as an engineering yeah. marvel. Yes. Tell us about that. I don't know anything about that tunnel. Well, neither did I. And that was one of the things I discovered on this trip. I was traveling from Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, to Honshu, the main island. And I expected, I had a ticket, and I expected it was going to be a ferry. And then the train didn't stop. It just went underground and underwater. It's the longest railway tunnel in the world. Uh, It's uh, over 35 miles long and goes uh, under the sea and connects the, the two main islands together. And, you know, you're, under, you're in the darkness for about 30 minutes. So I think uh, people who are severely claustrophobic might find it frightening. But I was fascinated by it. It really is an engineering marvel, like you said. And this is on a high-speed train? Uh, yes, it's not the bullet train. They're actually, okay. this is the last extent of the bullet train. We'll, we'll reach into Hokkaido. They're working on it right now. Uh, but it's still faster than most trains in the world run. And you're basically under in a tunnel for 35 minutes underwater. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to the tunnel um, between England and France, only mm-hmm. longer. That is quite extraordinary. How long has that been in existence, do you know? Uh, since 1988. <laughs> and oh, I didn't know that. I, you know, it totally surprised me. I was, I was shocked. I thought, oh, you know, who, who knew about this? And I think that it's evident of the Japanese culture as well that they're modest about these things. You know, we, we had so much fanfare about the tunnel, when in reality something bigger already existed. And is there an accompanying uh, tunnel for cars and trucks? Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that um, you can actually put your cars on the train and they, they carry underneath. You don't, you don't drive the tunnel, no. 
Right, right, right. And uh, how did you like the Sakiji market, the seafood market in Tokyo? Oh, outstanding. Uh, the best sushi I've ever eaten in my life. Uh, you, they have so many different sushi stands right next to the market that you can eat at. But just to actually watch the tuna auction and to see all of these gigantic fish that have been flash frozen out there and the seriousness of it, it this is very serious business. It's like being at the stock exchange in New York City. They, they take fish very seriously in this country. I think visiting the uh, the market, the fish market, is, is mandatory if you visit Tokyo. But I think we should point out to listeners that you don't wander in at 8 in the evening and eat in those uh, uh, those sushi uh, restaurants because they're only open from about, oh, 5 a.m. till maybe 10. Am I right? That's right. It's an early morning sushi run. I was eating my sushi at 6.30 in the morning, which, which shocked some people. But uh, if it's fresh and that's when it is, that's when you eat it. So, yeah, plan to get up, get there around 4 a.m. Now, for a while, they uh, didn't allow tourists to walk around. I gather they've relaxed that? Uh, they've relaxed it to some extent. They're still very adamant that this is not a tourist attraction. I think there's some pressure to keep tourists at bay because this is work that's going on. They don't want it to turn into this huge tourist attraction. And yet, when I was there... There were tourists that were that were there. Yes, it's a must. I got to say, it's a must. One last question: You you posted a blog. Up, oh, no, Andrew, we're out of time. I hate this of getting oh, out no of time. Problem. <laughs> hey, have uh, a great rest so of the much. trip. We'll follow you. You can follow Andrew at his Twitter feed at Where's Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Sayonara. Sayonara. Rudy Max's world is coming right back. So get on the phone now at 800-387-8025. That's 1-800-387-8025. You can also enjoy the program anytime at RudyMaxa.com. How awesome is it that Sam Adams Oktoberfest won a gold medal for best Oktoberfest beer in Germany? Sam Adams Oktoberfest is everything an Oktoberfest should be. Full-bodied, amber color, and a clean, smooth finish. We brew Oktoberfest with five varieties of malted barley to give it a deep amber hue and a big, rich flavor. Ah, delicious. We only brew it two months a year, so grab a Sam Adams Oktoberfest today before it's too late. Boston Beer Company, Boston, Mass. So what are you driving now? A Ford? A Honda? A Toyota? A few hours from now, it could be a car with OnStar. Introducing OnStar FMV, the new way to add OnStar to just about any car. All you have to do is head to your local Best Buy to see all it can do. Then Best Buy can install it for you. And suddenly, you're driving around in a car with the powerful protection of OnStar. Visit OnStar.com for availability, limitations, subscription details, and stores near you. Participate in the program, call now at 800-387-8025 or log on to RudyMaxa.com. Here's Rudy Maxa. Welcome back to the show. It's 33 after the hour. In 1977, Charles Precourt graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy and then went on to earn a couple of advanced degrees. He became a fighter pilot, eventually a test pilot, and eventually joined the country's astronaut program in the January of 1990. He's a veteran of four space flights. He spent 932 hours in space. Uh, before his retirement from NASA six years ago, he was intimately involved in the joint space efforts of both the American and Russian space teams. He was deputy manager of the International Space Station. So I thought, who better to talk to about the future of space travel? Colonel Precourt, welcome to the show. Hello, Rudy. 
Rudy. How are you? Well, thank you. Let me let me first ask you about the failure last month of that uh, unmanned uh, Russian uh, Soyuz cargo rocket mission that was supposed to transport supplies to the International Space Station. There are six astronauts in that station as we speak this weekend. Was that a big blow to the immediate mission or just a temporary setback? Well, it's uh, certainly a, an operational challenge. Um, they are fine on orbit with the current status of supplies. Um, they also have uh, two uh, return spacecraft attached to the station. They're also named Soyuzes. Uh, but the progress capsule that was on the Soyuz rocket uh, that failed uh, was bringing them supplies, and it also is the rocket that would bring up new spacecraft and new crew. So. Although the crew on board is, is in fine condition for now, the, the real challenge is how do we re-crew the station when we need to rotate crew out, and how do we keep getting supplies there? And while it seems it seems as this is on the really getting equipment and crew to the space station, is now on the shoulder of uh, the Russians, is, am I correct? Uh, that's correct for the time being. You know, we, uh, we retired the space shuttle this year. Uh, yes, we did. Do you regret so, that the U.S. has ended its participation in that aspect of the program? Well, I, uh, I certainly look forward to us, uh, uh, you know, uh, launching our own new program uh, vehicle uh, to replace the shuttle. Uh, we've been delayed on that uh, for several years, uh, and, and I think we need to energize that activity so that we can, in fact, provide this assured access to the space station facility. You know, the station is, is just now coming into its own. We haven't been able to keep six people on board continuously uh, until uh, recently when it finished its assembly. Uh, and so now we can turn it into a real research laboratory with a critical mass of people up there to do the work that they're doing. You know, they're, they're, they're doing uh, research on the salmonella uh, disease right now to uh, try to create a vaccine. They use the weightlessness of, of uh, orbit to uh, do spe specialized research in those kinds of things. So. And am I correct in presuming that the reason America doesn't have the capability, or you, you discussed there's been a two-year, couple of years delay, is a function of money, not a lack of talent? That's absolutely true. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the program is a great uh, investment for the nation. I think of NASA's uh, research and development activities and, and human spaceflight as as a good analog to the research and development investments that companies make to improve their business. Uh, certainly NASA's, the investment in NASA is, is very similar to that on a national scale, and it improves our economic well-being to, to invest in these technologies. So um, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll accelerate our efforts to get our, our replacement uh, launcher and spacecraft to the shuttle so that we can keep going further in space. My guest is retired Air Force Colonel Charles Precourt, a former astronaut who uh, uh, has gone up to space uh, for four on four missions. Now, this is a travel show, Colonel, as you know, and I've had a guest or two on who have discussed the commercial future of space travel, and uh, it, it seems to me, from listening to a couple of my guests, that the focus seems to be on sending up sort of ticket-buying civilians to give them a bird's-eye view of Earth from space, maybe experience some weightlessness for a few minutes. What about, uh, is there going to come a day in the next couple of decades where space travel will be used to transport me quickly from point A to point B on the Earth? Well, uh, that's a great question. You know, the, uh, the speed to, to uh, uh, satisfy uh, maintaining orbit is, it, is a very high speed. It's 17,500 miles per hour. Uh, so to go from point A to point B on the planet's surface, like from New York to Tokyo, uh, it's not very practical to actually go all the way to orbit and then return. Uh, because, for instance, when we return in the shuttle, 
we have to start our deorbit uh, halfway around the planet. Um, right. So it actually takes us 45, 50 minutes uh, just to get out of orbit and, and achieve a landing. So um, that kind of travel where you go from point A to point B on the planet is it's probably more appropriate to be thinking about, you know, three, four times the speed of sound, whereas in, in orbit we're 25 times the speed of sound. You almost get up and going too fast. You're going too fast, right. Are we yeah, thinking about three or four times the speed of sound? Well, you know, the, you remember the Concorde was just over the speed of sound. And, right. And uh, those speeds are quite a challenge in the atmosphere because of frictional heating and so forth. But I think one day you will see that kind of capability. Um, it comes down to the, the economic return when people invest in, in those kinds of, of uh, ventures. Will there be uh, a true com- a market for it such that you can see a financial return for the, the effort to, to create that capability? Right, and as both British Airways and Air France, who had the Concords, uh, admitted, they never made a dollar on it. It was more of a showcase than, uh, right. uh, than a money-making prop- proposition. So we really need a, a, a real breakthrough advance in propulsion so that the cost of creating those energies is brought way down so that you, in fact, can make some money on that kind of venture. Colonel Precord, I thank you for taking time out of your weekend to talk to us. It was a great pleasure for me, too. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Colonel Charles Precord is a retired Air Force officer and astronaut, very involved in the space program. I really appreciate his time. Stick around. When we come back, we're going to revisit uh, Jennifer Overseen, talk about her role as an eyewitness for the nation on the morning of 9-11. to talk to Rudy Maxa at 800-387-8025. You can also email the show anytime at info at rudymaxa.com. I'm sure you're thinking, boy, I'd like to pay less for my car insurance, but switching seems like a lot of work, all the hassle and whatnot. Well, I'm here to tell you that is simply not the case. Geico makes it so easy to switch and start saving money straight away without getting buried in a ton of paperwork. You know, that actually happened to me once, literally. I was buried under my income taxes for six days. Haunting, really. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. (coughs) On average, a smoker will die 15 to 20 years earlier than a non-smoker. Quit risking your life. Quit spending all your hard-earned money. Quit worrying about dirty looks. Take your freedom back and switch to American Blue Tip, the hassle-free electronic cigarette that looks, feels, and tastes just like the real thing. It's not real smoke, just water vapor. Crazy. I can finally relax without sucking in all those chemicals and tar. No secondhand smoke. Quit thinking about it. Make the switch to American Blue Tip right now. It's everything you love about smoking without the tar, tobacco, and carcinogens. You won't even miss cigarettes. Call now. Now for your risk-free trial of American Blue Tip, call 1-800-604-3206. That's 1-800-604-3206. Quit stalling and switch right now. Call 1-800-604-3206. That's 1-800-604-3206. Guys, discomfort and chafing from wetness-related friction can hit any time. Get relief and prevent it too with Gold Bond medicated foot powder for your feet body powder for your, you know, whether you're working out or just holding down the couch, you're a guy. And unlike baby powders, Gold Bond's got the medicated formulas to fight itch, odor, and wetness. Plus, it's got that cooling kick that lets you know it's working wherever. Keep it cool with Gold Bond medicated foot and body powders. It's a guy thing. Use as directed. Heritage for the blind. 
remind you to be kind. There's something you can do for those who depend on you. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS. 1-800-DONATE-CARS today. Heritage for the Blind is an IRS-recognized charity, and your donation is tax-deductible. Whether your car runs or not, we'll tow it away for free. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day hotel voucher to one of many exciting locations. So be a star. Donate your car. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS or call 1-800-555-6689. And remember, you can prevent blindness by getting your eyes checked annually. Call 1-800-DONATE-CARS. 1-800-DONATE-CARS today. This segment of the program is brought to you by MedJet Assist. Unlike other evacuation services, only MedJet Assist lets you decide which hospital will be your final destination. Regardless of the nature of your illness or injury, if you're hospitalized while traveling, they'll be there for you. So take trips, not chances, and visit MedJetAssist.com or go to RudyMaxa.com and look under radio sponsors for more info. 43 minutes after the hour. If uh, you happen to miss the top of the show, I spoke briefly with uh, a friend of mine named Jennifer Oberstein. She works currently with... Uh, an association of luxury hotels around the world called Leading Hotels of the World. Uh, uh, but 10 years ago, on this weekend, she was working at the Ritz-Carlton in New York's Battery Park. Uh, she was a public relations executive there. And she happened to notice an explosion, uh, what seemed to look like an explosion, at one of the World Trade Center towers. Uh, she used to work at the Today Show, so she naturally enough called the control room at NBC's Today Show. And they said they had heard some rumors or something, but were, was she sure she had seen anything? Uh, and I asked Jennifer to come back uh, here at the bottom of the show to talk a little more about that. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Okay, so you call the control room, and are you looking out a window at that moment? No, I actually, when I when I first saw the explosion, I just emerged from, from the subway, and I was uh, oh. right near Battery Park, so I was outside. Um, and then I was on the phone with them, and uh, I was still still outside. Um, Were you walking toward uh, the Trade Center? No, you know, I was actually, it's kind of, it's a little hard to explain, but I was walking towards where I could see them more clearly. Okay. So I was walking basically towards, uh, I was almost on the west side highway at this point, so I could look straight ahead and, and see them both. And you saw, I guess at first you saw what looked like, did you hear anything or was it just smoke? You know, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I thought I was looking up in the air before it happened, but, you know, it's just hard to say if I heard something and then I looked up in the air. But um, but I saw lots of smoke. I thought I saw some debris. And I was about five blocks south at this point. Um, so as I was talking to to the the people at NBC, um, they were asking me different questions, and I, I just didn't want to didn't want to speculate. And then I believe they asked me if they, if it was a small plane. I did see a police officer near me, and I asked if if they'd like me to talk to the police officer and ask him. And and he said that yes, he he believes it was a small plane, um, but people tended to be going about their business. Now, were you on the air at this point? Yes, I was. Okay. I was on the air, and then I was basically listening as, as t- telling them what I, what, you know, whatever I could, what I could see. I didn't know much. All I could, all in my opinion, I could really do was tell them something really did happen down there, um, and it was important to follow up. I didn't have specific details, 
um, some minutes went by. They would have different people. They had someone else, I believe, on the phone who had a different vantage point. And while I was on the phone with them, uh, I heard a really loud noise, and the ground below me started shaking. And I looked looked above, and I saw an enormous silver belly of a plane, a large, large jet, and it flew over my head. And I watched it fly uh, straight towards the Trade Center. And right before it hit, I watched it turn about 90 degrees so that the entire plane could could hit the building. And you were still on the air? I was still on the air, did yes. You, uh, did you, do you remember whether you screamed or did you just say, oh, my God? Uh, I didn't. I didn't scream. I was shocked. I, I, I recall saying that, telling them a plane just, a plane just, another plane just flew into the building. If they thought that, if they thought the, the first one was a plane, I, mean, I didn't say this, but I, I just said a, a plane just flew into the building. It just flew into the building. A commercial plane. I didn't, I, I knew it was a huge, a huge, a huge jet. I thought mm-hmm. it pro- probably was a commercial plane, but it was, it was all too unfathomable. I couldn't, it was just hard to to make any sense of it. I will tell you, though, that um, I did not think whatever was, was motivating me at the time in terms of how I was thinking, I just assumed there was a lone, horrible person on that plane. I, until I was back home again hours later, I had no idea that, and I guess I didn't want to believe that it was a plane full of people as and well. We didn't know it was an attack yet at that point. This was just a terrible accident uh, in the minds of the media and the, and the country who might have been watching as I was. Well, I think that from at, it, until until I saw that second plane go in, I, it could have been the, the first one could have been anything to me. But when I saw how that plane basically used used the West Side Highway almost as a as a runway for its flight path, and I watched it completely. I mean, it it was as intentional. There was there was no question in my mind. I just I just did not did not realize that it was a plane full of innocent people, and it, I just had witnessed basically a, a mass murder. We have about 15 seconds left, Jennifer. What are you doing this weekend? This weekend is really important for me. I, I always try and take time out to remember and talk to people and share stories. I believe everyone has a story, you know, whether you were downtown or you, you, you knew one of the victims. But I believe wherever you were, how you were, how you were told, how you found out is important. And I like to share those stories with people. I like to, to, to find, I find comfort in sharing stories. Uh, It's a tough weekend. Thank you. I wish you the best. Thank you for joining us. Jennifer Oberstein was uh, working at the Ritz-Carlton in 9-11. Rudy Max's World phone lines are open now, so call us at 800-387-8025. We'll be back after these messages. segment of Rudy Max's World is brought to you by Service Magic. Now you can hire pre-screened home pros with confidence for repairs, remodeling, plumbing needs, maid services, and so much more. Visit www.homebuild411.servicemagic.com. That's homebuild411.servicemagic.com. 
52 after the hour. I'm Rudy Maxa here in Rudy Maxa's World. Uh, normally, I do a few deals at the end of the hour. I'm going to try to pack them all in the end of the second hour, if you don't mind, because uh, in talking with Jennifer Oberstein, the woman who really reported on the Today Show, because she was standing right there, that the uh, second plane had just crashed into the World Trade Center, uh, I thought it might be a, a good idea to talk to our, our pilot in residence, Patrick Smith. He writes the column, askthepilot.com. Excuse me, that's his website, askthepilot.com. He writes a column called Ask the Pilot for salon.com. I'd go to the website. You can read all about it, uh, and you hear him frequently on this show. Uh, Patrick, what what to you as a commercial pilot, I should say that uh, Patrick is still a commercial pilot for a major U.S. airline, uh, what to you is the legacy of 9-11? Well, that's a great question, Rudy. Um, let's be honest. The attacks, whether directly or indirectly, inspired a, a certain pathology of uh, disastrous, you could say, and very expensive decisions. And, and among those, of course, was, well, the, the dystopian nightmare, let's call it, of the Transportation Security Administration. Um, any conversation as to how the world of air travel has been impacted by 9-11 has to begin and end with the TSA. Mm-hmm. Um, as to what exactly the TSA's failures have been, I mean, that's something we could talk about all day, and we've talked about it on the show uh, in the past. Um, but what else? I mean, you know, looking back, and if we take TSA out of the picture for a second, you know, what else is, have, have we seen? What are, what are the other effects, long-term effects of, of 9-11? Um, it's hard to say. The industry was already poised for some pretty dramatic changes, the airline industry. Uh, the legacy carriers were already uh, groaning under serious financial pressures. Uh, the low-cost airline sector, fronted by uh, Southwest and, and a certain uh, feisty newcomer called JetBlue, um, already had the legacy carriers back on their heels. The regional airline sector was exploding. Um, the attacks were a powerful catalyst that pushed the industry into a, a down cycle, really the likes of which it had never seen bankrupting at least four major airlines along the way. But it can be argued that these things were going to happen anyway, and all that 9-11 did really is, is make them happen faster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you, as a commercial pilot, do you feel better with those reinforced locked doors on the cockpit? Well, there, are, there have been certain changes uh, in security protocols that have been useful, and that's one of them. Um, you know, but most of them, frankly, have not. Most of what we see on the concourse checkpoint. Most of what passengers deal with, the, the face-to-face frontline security changes since 9-11, um, you know, have, have been really uh, inefficient and wasteful. Uh, the, the big irony here um, is that the attacks of 9-11, the success of those attacks, really had nothing to do with airport security in the first place. Um, it wasn't a loophole in security that the, that the attackers were taking advantage of. It was a loophole in our mindset and our understanding of what a hijacking was and how it was going to unfold, what weapons the guys had, whether it was box cutters or ballpoint pens for that matter, really didn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What um, uh, There's a subject that I, I haven't heard discussed lately. It was sort of a, a quick flash-up in the press several years ago about pilots carrying guns. Number one, is that still permitted? And number two, if you had to venture a guess of how many of your colleagues in commercial uh, airliners are carrying guns, what percentage would you pick? Well, unfortunately, we can't go there, Rudy. I'm really not at liberty to uh, to uh, throw out any numbers. Um, 
do I think the the federal flight deck officer program, as it's called, uh, is is effective? I, I don't know. Um, the you know, pilots are permitted to, to carry guns now. Pilots that are permitted correct. to carry guns. That yeah, is, okay. That is correct. If they undergo a certain and, and pretty rigorous training program and certification, they are allowed to do so. Okay. Um, is it effective? Does it deter terrorism? I mean, that's, you know, it's it's hard to say. To some degree, I think this is, you know, um, something that should have been in place before the attacks, not afterwards, because I think the 9-11 scheme, that whole uh, template that was used by the attackers, is really off the table as, as a workable, viable scheme now. Right. But it's it's hard to measure any sort of uh, deterrent, deterrent factor. Plus, you'd have to get out of that locked cockpit to use it, so it's not as if you can, you know, shoot through a bullet, uh, you know, a little porthole or something. So. Uh, correct. I mean, there are, there are a number of reasons why, uh, from their point of view, that that uh, scheme, that uh, blueprint really wouldn't work. It, it would have such an extremely high likelihood of failure. And that was the beauty of 9-11, that so long as the guys didn't chicken out, it was all but guaranteed to succeed. And kind of just the opposite is true today. Are you flying today? This weekend, I should say? I'm not. I came back from uh, South America yesterday, and I've, uh, I've got a few days off. You doing anything special this weekend? Uh, relaxing and, and working, on the, working on my next column. And I hope you're keeping your fingers crossed with the rest of us that this is a quiet weekend on all fronts. I would venture to guess it will be, Rudy. I hope so. Patrick, thanks so much for taking time out of your weekend. Have a, have a relaxing one. Anytime. You too, Rudy. You can read Patrick Smith's writing at askthepilot.com and also at salon.com. He pens a uh, irregular but very good column. He really, really uh, makes commercial aviation understandable to... Uh, uh, to laymen like us. Askthepilot.com. You'll get more details or at salon.com. We'll be right back. If your station is leaving us this hour, uh, we'll see you next week. Most stations are sticking around for a second hour. I'm glad. We'll be back in about six minutes in Rudy Max's world. been listening to Rudy Max's World, and as always, you're hearing Must Hear Radio on the SSI Radio Network.